I think that a lot of good writing is reading. And I hear that in the writing community a lot. People are always talking about what they've been reading because if you just sit there writing and being stuck in your own head, then you're not writing well most of the time. Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. A few weeks back I did a convo couch episode with Rachel Johns where we sat on the virtual convo couch and chatted about writing, basically. I had great feedback on that episode, so I've decided to do a few more in that style where I just sit on the convo couch, chat to authors about where they're up to with their writing life, how they're finding the whole process of writing and publishing a book and anything basically that's related to that. So I'm going to include in these conversations the aspects of rights for women that listeners and that I actually enjoy hearing about, and that's about the craft of writing, the business of writing and the heart of writing. My guest today is Victoria Brookman. Victoria's debut novel, Burnt Out, was published by HarperCollins in 2021. It's about a writer, Khaled Alliance, who loses everything in a bushfire right after her husband has left her and she really hits rock bottom. And after a very public rant that goes viral, her life changes dramatically. Victoria is an author, activist and academic and lives in the Blue Mountains and I'm guessing has had perhaps some experience with bushfires, which I'll be talking to her about as well. Her resume as a political staffer and founder of feminist organisations speaks to her passion for women's and human rights. Victoria studied English and creative writing and is currently completing a doctorate and working, I presume, on her second novel. So I was curious to find out about how she found the whole debut fiction experience and to chat about that whole process of putting yourself out there showing the world, you know, what you've got in terms of your writing and then maybe going on to work on that second novel and how that whole writing process and writing life has worked for her. So it's going to be a really interesting chat, I think. Victoria's a fascinating person and has a lot to share. So grab a cuppa and join Victoria and I on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Victoria, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And I've been following your progress since your novel Burnt Out came out last year. And it's been really great to see you. We're on the solitary scribes and just to see you connecting with the writing community and getting yourself out there. It's been really good. But how has that experience been for you? It's been good. The reader response has been fantastic. It's it's it, Honestly, it's been hard to compete with the American authors who have been swamping our charts, as you would know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, as a first-time novelist debut, it's been really lovely to hear people's feedback and see people connecting with the book and the themes of it and cheering Callie on. So, yeah, it's been lovely. 
Oh, that's so good. Yeah, like you say, it is hard to compete, isn't it? Because there's, and I think with COVID too, like a lot of high titles were held back and then there was a big push at the beginning of this year, wasn't there, to get a whole bunch of books out there from publishers? Yeah, and it just felt like I was looking, I was like, I'm not going to look at the top 10 because I'll just get disappointed that I'm not in it. But I was looking at the top yeah. 10 just as a like sociological observation, really. And there was like, it was, I think about six or seven titles of just straight up fiction were Colleen Hoover and Taylor Jenkins Reid. And then there was like Ali Hazelwood. And, those, and I'm like, I'm glad, like on the one hand, I'm really happy that, that Australian readers are flocking to this great fiction. Like it's mm. good stuff, right? I, mm. I've read it too. <laughs> it's yeah. fantastic. And I'm really happy that there's quality women's fiction out there for all of us to read. But I was also like, oh, please give me a chance. <laughs> yeah. no, oh, look at me. <laughs> no, it'll all happen. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think looking, oh, we'll get on to talking about all this, but looking at the big picture is the important thing too. But Let's go back in time, basically, and yeah, tell yeah. us about how you first got into writing and how you then developed to the point where you had a debut novel out. Like many authors, I have been writing my entire life. It was always something I did basically either to pass the time away or as a bit of an exercise. With I remember sitting down with my mum in the school holidays and she was working from home. And uh, we were sitting at the kitchen table and I was probably just bothering her about everything all the time. And she was like, okay, just sit down and write me a story, okay? <laughs> and, and I did. And, and I remember it was like about a hero lifesaver. And, and it was, I think I still have it somewhere. It was called... <laughs> you should pull that out. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Simply the Best, named after, of course, the song Simply the Best. Yeah, good title. And, yep. Yeah, it was like the mum who was a lifesaver was Simply the Best. <laughs> It was great. It was heartwarming. So that I, that was one of my earliest memories of writing, and and I always used to like writing songs as a teenager as well. And I used to catch the train a long way to school every day for inexplicable reasons, and so I would sit there writing songs and poems in my head and jotting them down when I should have been doing my homework. And and then as I grew older, I think I got to uni, and, and it became one of these things where you never really talk about your writing because you're yeah. so desperate to just be like blending into the background and so I'd be writing short stories and poems and not showing them to anyone and and I came from a bit of a tradition of secret poets my mum would write poetry and she'd just show me and then she'd be like this is where I keep all my poems and oh wow um, how yeah. nice that how good that she shared that with you that's right I think I'm the only person she ever shared them with oh. and my brother too maybe a bit when as he got older and my grandmother who I never met she was also a secret poet and in the decades so she died a year before before I was born and in the decades after her death, my uncle in particular has just unearthed these poems bit by bit and sent them through. And I've connected with them at various points in my life. And there was one about mothering and I had two kids at the time. And I was just like, you just find something that speaks to you. And it just yeah. connected with me on this from 30 years in the past. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was amazing. And so, yeah, I guess I've always had that thing of we can write, but it's just for us. And it wasn't really until I went on maternity leave that I was sitting there. We were in this little flat in a meadow, meadow bank. I had a baby who was almost one. I didn't really want to go back to work because the childcare situation was like not mm. ideal. 
And, and I had finished just the year before I'd finished and graduated from my honours thesis, which was about a New York poet called Sarah Teasdale. And okay. I had done so much work on her. And she'd been a poet in that real rise of feminism, the suffrage movement time. It, they were fighting so hard for suffrage in, in the US. And uh, she was around Greenwich Village with all the bohemians and radicals and socialists. So I'd written this awesome thesis about her. And then I was thinking, God, I've spent so much time on that and no one will ever read it. And I can't let that research and the kind of mental journey that I took doing that mean nothing. And so I decided to write a novel based on her because okay. I was like I had nothing better to do. Yeah. I'm going to fictionalise her life, basically. And so my first novel that I ever wrote when I was like 27 was a historical fiction about a woman oh, wow. discovering poetry in Greenwich Village and going on this big, long adventure around the US and yeah, it was a really fun story and so I guess that was my practice novel because I tried really hard to get an agent and a publisher and everyone was like, eh. I had a few requests for the full manuscript but never really went anywhere. And so then after that I enrolled in a Masters at Macquarie Uni doing, it was a Masters of Research in Creative Writing in English and part of that I had supervision from a published novelist, academic, who helped me to write the parts of a novel in progress for them. And that was my second practice novel. <laughs> but I wrote that one for five years, <laughs> wrote it and rewrote it and was deeply in love with it. But I, in my mind, it was literary fiction. <laughs> and everyone, anyone who is familiar or becomes familiar with my voice in Burnt Out or Callie's voice, the way I write in Burnt Out would know that I'm really not a literary fiction author. Despite my background in English, I'm like, my voice is much more commercial. And I think that's good, but I, no one ever really told me that because you come from yeah. that everyone's like, everything must be of literary note and things that aren't literary fiction are trash or don't exist. I um, had exactly the same experience, Victoria, because <laughs> I, I spent seven years writing. I did a master's in creative writing back yeah. in the day, a long time ago, <laughs> and wrote what was really a literary novel or what I thought was literary novel. Like it had little bits of poetry in it and all this. It was great learning experience. Yeah. And then I, and then when I did Nano in 2009, I thought oh, I'm just after seven years of working on that and trying to put it out there and having a few little bites but nothing substantial, mm. I just thought oh, I'm just going to write something completely different and just start and see what where it goes. And the voice came out completely differently. And it wasn't until that point that I realised, hang on. All that stuff I've been writing isn't actually my voice. I've been trying to fit into a box that claims that it's not really a box at all, but yeah. it's deeply constrictive in a lot of ways. It isn't it? And I guess that's, we're going to get on to talking about some of that later with the marketing stuff. But so what happened from there? You spent five years on that second novel. Five years, I was in between postgraduate degrees as well. I had another kid. I We moved to the mountains and I was, yeah, I was really married to that story it mm. was a family choosing actively choosing like knowingly choosing to join a cult because life under capitalism was too hard basically wow okay and, yep. and that's what that's it everyone's rationalized wow okay and <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds all right but I think it's a really interesting <laughs> premise like I'd be really interested to see how that plays out actually that's it, that's it. so I sent it 
to a lot of agents. Once again, I did the rounds of the agents in Australia this time because it was it was set in Byron Bay and it was before the Hemsworths ruined Byron Bay. Okay. Before it was totally unattainable. It was just starting to become unattainable to live there. But like a lot of people, I'd always been like, one day I just want to go and move to Byron Bay and sit there by the sea. And I think we all have that dream. <laughs> Everyone had that dream and then it got ruined by Hollywood. <laughs> so it was set there. So I sent it around to Australian publishers. I think I sent it to the Banjo Prize, which is run by my current publisher, Anna, at HarperCollins. Never went anywhere. And I had this one agent reply. And when agents reply, sometimes they're like, it's just not for me. And then sometimes they'll give you like one line mm. that is really useful. <laughs> yeah. One agent said, thanks. I really like the concept. I really like the voice. But I like my commercial fiction to get going a bit quicker. And I was like, excuse me, it's literary fiction. How dare you? (laughs) And then I was like, hold on. So anyway, I got to the end of five years. I was trying to get into my doctorate. I think it was the end of 2020. So I was in my doctorate. I was going to get a scholarship to start a whole new novel. And I made one last desperate attempt to turn that book into something readable. And there was just one day where I just went, it's over. And the bushfires had basically started here in the mountains. You could see the big smoke plume driving up the mountain every time we came up from Sydney. And that that fire started in like October or something and just burned. It did. It kept it's going for a long time. And so I'd give I just gave up. I just knew like that was a death knell. I went through this intense grieving process where mm. I was just like Oh, you know how, I don't, I don't yeah. know, but when you just go this, I, there's something broken about this book and I don't know how to fix it because I have had my head in that world with those characters for so long and I don't know how to reorganise it. And yeah. to this day, I still don't know how to reorganise it and I am desperate for someone to come to me with the answers because okay. I loved that book. And I yeah, loved you that. never know. Like you just never know. <laughs> Time, you go back to it later or somebody else looks at it and might just say one little thing that's, yes, that's it. Yeah, have you thought about killing someone in the first chapter? I don't know. Anyway, so look, I gave up on that. I was like, it's over. My life is over. All I can do is go and pretend I'm a proper writer in this doctorate that I'm starting next year. And then the Black Summer happened. So that was about in November 2019, I think. And I, everyone had their own experience of the Black Summer. We didn't lose anything, but it was a horrible summer, obviously. Yeah. It was smoky all the time. We had constant sore throats. We just watched our garden and all the surroundings just become dry and brown and crunchy. Plants dying. You couldn't water anything because of the water restrictions. That's right. Uh, and I watched the trees uproot themselves. They literally started to push their roots up through the soil looking for water, becoming very shallow rooting plants suddenly. And and I and there were experiences like seeing birds with singed feathers mm. in the local village and having birds on really hot days, birds that I knew, <laughs> birds that I was friends with, frankly, yeah. coming and sitting under the shade of our deck and just sitting there with their mouths open. Oh, mm. just, gaping mouths and it was absolutely heartbreaking and we were all doing things around the mountains because at at the same time as that was horrible and heartbreaking and in a lot of ways very traumatizing the mountains was pulling together all the people were checking on each other 
They were planning. They were asking about each other's plans. There were people plugging up their gutters and putting water in them just in case embers came down. Um, There were people putting buckets of water on their front lawns and on the verges for thirsty wildlife, but also to put out spot fires if ember attack. One was really pitching in. My next door neighbours, one of them is an RFS firefighter, and so I was getting some good intel from them. It was my first bushfire season as a proper mountains person, as a bad bad bushfire season. Um, I had my lovely other neighbour saying, do you know what, if the fire comes... I'm just going to head up to the club. I'm just going to wait for them to knock on the door and head up to the club in my finest clothes and just let everything else burn. (laughs) But then at the same time you had the RFS saying, we don't know that we'll get to you to knock on your door. And so we actually, my family, we're on a single road ridgeline. We made the call to evacuate, I think, three or four times. We ended up just driving around with our evacuation boxes in the boot eventually because it was easier than carrying them every time. So all our mortgage documents, all our photo albums, all my notes, everything that I had from that novel that I'd just given up on, I brought along because it was all my world. And then I was standing in the shower one day and probably having too long a shower, if I'm being honest, for the water restrictions, but it's important thinking time. And I thought, what would happen if a fire came up and just burned everything that I'd ever worked on for that book? And it burned all my notes and all my hard drives and my computer and everything. What would happen then? Could anything good happen out of that? Because I thought in a way it could be a bit of a relief. In a ho- like, It would be horrible and people really did lose everything and still trying to recover now. But I thought from a, from a creative's point of view, yeah, it's kind of good to burn all my work and just have not have that hanging over my head. And I followed that dark comedic thought and started thinking about what could that unlock for someone who'd been struggling to write a novel for so long. And and I just started to write down notes. And then one day when we were evacuated in the Penrith shops, I was standing outside Big W and a line came to me that's in the first chapter. And so I sat there and wrote it out on my phone thinking, I'm going to make this into a proper novel. I'm going to go for this. Like, I'm going to do it. And and that that line is still in the novel today that it made it yeah. through what's the line oh it can was. you remember yeah i've got a copy of my book here hey. it was the line about cleaning the toilet with lavender scented detergent and it was something we really did we because even though we were evacuating because there were catastrophic fire conditions and we thought we don't want to get trapped here we don't want to be trying to walk when everyone's trying to evacuate and the fire trucks can't come down the street and it would have been a nightmare so the <laughs> What was it? Hold on. The line was, Callie ushered her, the cat, into the cat carrier, then went to clean the toilet with the lavender-scented disinfectant. It had become an evacuation ritual, an almost superstitious one. It wasn't necessarily that she thought the house would perish if she had a dirty dummy, but the routine hadn't failed her yet. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that how that, that process you've just described, Victoria, of that, how there'd been this thing brewing in the back of your mind, but then that one line came to you and then you were off with the story. I love that. And it was, I couldn't really write it properly in the Black Summer as a big thing, but I thought about it like a writing exercise, partly to see if I could write a commercial fiction that act- that people actually wanted to buy and read. Yeah, it was me thinking, I wonder if I can do this. And so even though I was like, I'm going to make this into a book, I didn't 
quite, I treated it very flippantly in a way. I, I'd never thought of myself as a commercial fiction author. So I thought, I'm just going to see if I can do it. And, and so I started, I went online and I literally Googled stuff. I probably shouldn't say this, but I did a lot of Googling into like proper commercial three-act structure stuff. Yeah. How are romance novels structured? What, how do you find that killer first line? What are you looking for? And then I was looking into my own favourite books, thinking about them, thinking what was great about them? How did they draw someone in? And had a full, I used Trello for my planning because right. I, access it on my computer and my phone. So it's great for random thoughts that suddenly pop up. So I was sitting on Trello for about two days straight, just only planning this novel and plotting out what I thought each chapter could be. And it was a fairly, I pretty much stuck to that plan. So I didn't start properly sitting down to write it until the fires were almost over. It was the start of February. My youngest had finally gone to daycare and I had some time sitting at uni in the library and I could see the mountains from my desk and I could see the smoke still. Mm. And I was sitting there going, oh, God, is, it, is today going to be the day that everything just burns, right? How the kids at school and pick them up. And, but it was fantastic inspiration, of course. And, and having that free time without having kids underfoot just gave me the the impetus to just sit down and pour it all out on the page. And I actually ended up writing it quite quickly just because there was so much emotion behind it. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Like a hard time. And the idea that I could write something about how it had been on the ground here, but also how the community had pulled together and checked on each other and those positive aspects as well. That was really important to me to be able to put that all in there. How did you find your, your voice was flowing differently maybe to the other sort of literary style novels that you'd laboured over for all those time, those many years? I think because I didn't feel like I had to turn out some great piece of fiction, it was very freeing. And also mm. that react structure was really freeing. I think a lot of my trouble had been thinking about what other people thought about it and thinking I have to make this great thing and people are going to love this. And with Burnt Out, I was really just going, I don't care. Like, I honestly don't care. I'm just having a fun time. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, Callie, even though I, I, I'm nothing like Callie in terms of life choice, in a lot of ways, her kind of issues with her own burnout at the start of the book and not being able to get stuff done and the things that held her up at certain points were just straight up me, yeah. which is always hard when people are like, I just hated her. <laughs> <laughs> I think like you're saying, you're really, you're tapping into the emotions that you actually felt all over all the different time periods. And so you're not telling your story, but you're using your emotions to bring the character to life, aren't you? Exactly. And actually the novel that Callie loses in the house fire at the start of the novel, that was the novel that I'd been <laughs> writing for five years. Okay. <laughs> So I, it was very therapeutic as well because I could put that in there and have her go, it's a novel about a family choosing to join a cult and then say she hated seeing everyone's eyes glazing over when she said it. It was everything and everything that had been bugging me in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. So when you wrote it fairly quickly, you I imagine there was some redrafting and revising. When did you get to the point where you thought, I think I can actually submit this to someone? So what I'm going to say is not what anyone should ever do. <laughs> okay, I like that preface, yeah. Just as I started my doctorate, 
we locked down. The world shut down and I pulled my daughter out of daycare and my husband decided he was working from home instead of travelling three hours each day to the city and we had all the kids at home and I went, you know what, the world's ending and I've been through this thing of cycle of rejection so many times. I know where this story is going. I've got a full chapter plan. I am going to submit it to some agents at the 30,000 words done. Wow. Say okay. 70,000 word novel and uh, see if they give me their useful one-liner feedback because I didn't think anyone would want it at that stage, but I just wanted them to say, yeah, you're heading in the right direction or something. Yeah, yeah. And it was really end-of-the-world vibes. <laughs> I was really like, yeah, I don't care anyway. And I thought, do you know what, if in some strange universe they decide they want the full manuscript, I will just write it. I'll just do it and then I'll send it to them. And then one of them wrote back and said, who I thought was going to say, please send me the first three chapters. Honestly, I only expected three chapters to be requested. This woman, bless her, said, please send me the full manuscript in two weeks. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. I <laughs> had to write 40,000 words to complete this book in two weeks. And this is where being ADHD really helps because okay, I yeah. the shit out of that and I got it done. <laughs> It was probably about two weeks because I took a bit of time to actually maybe three weeks because I I remember I finished it and then I sat back and I decided to let it sit and then give it a really quick read through and just find any big gaping holes or errors. And then she was like, I love this. Let's talk. Was that an agent or a publisher? Agent. Now, the interesting thing about this one was that she said, "Uh, yeah, I really like it. And I was left under the impression that yes, I have now got an agent. And she gave me some notes. She's thinking about changing this and that. And I changed it and sent it back to her. But then I thought, I haven't got a contract yet. And I thought, if I could get that agent, I wonder if there is someone who's more appropriate to this style of book. Because honestly, I'd chosen that agent because she'd given me some useful feedback in the past. And I was, I, and I thought she seems kind and helpful and I would happily sign on with her. But because I didn't have a contract, I thought I'm just going to shop it around a little bit more and just make sure that this book is with the absolute best person that it needs to be with. And having that agent interest meant that I could go to other agents and say, I've actually already got someone interested in this. If you want this, you're going to have to read it quickly. And that was key to actually getting the agent that I did end up signing up with because she had been looking for a bushfire novel since the black summer she and it just clicked the universe just brought us together and I she read it very quickly and called me and was like I love this let's sell it I'm gonna send you over a contract and so I signed on with her and said to the other one thanks but no thanks and I feel (laughs) I did feel a little bit bad for the other one but I think that you've got to in a lot of ways even though it's a very creative free-flowing process I think at some point we as authors have to turn on our business brain and I've just got to do what's right for the book so yeah that's how I ended up with my agent after so she started we she gave me some more notes we workshopped it a bit more helped me draw out different themes in the story and then she started sending it around to publishers and I think she sent around to four she sent it around to the major major commercial fiction publishers 
and and HarperCollins was interested. And it was only them, but do you know what? That's all you need. That's right. It's all you need because I was yeah. like, I probably would have chosen them anyway because... Like you say, it's like the stars aligning, isn't it? Who is your agent, Victoria? I've got Gabby at Left Bank Literary. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And she really appreciated the kind of political aspects of the book as well as it's a page turner. It's it's meant to be a fun book. And even though it starts with someone's house burning down, it's not a depressing dry read at all. It's Yeah. I wanted to tell a fun story about someone going on a journey and developing as a human being and coming into their own. So, yeah. That's, oh, I love that story. It's great. And it's actually a, a basically one year to the day from when I gave up on my previous novel to when I signed my contract with HarperCollins. Oh, fantastic. I love that story. <laughs> so good. So, Victoria, you've worked as a political staffer. You've been a founding member of the collective feminist collective Destroy the Joint and mm-hmm. I think it was Lactivists Australia, is that right? And you also have been... Um, very involved in the Sydney International Women's Day March for a number of years. Mm. So you're obviously um, a woman of convictions and passion. Mm. I'd like to ask you, what do you see as the role of fiction in informing readers about important issues like that? And how do you go about embedding some of those passions and beliefs into your fiction, into the narrative, without being too heavy-handed? That's a great question. Honestly, I think a lot of the time people read fiction to escape, especially commercial women's fiction. People go into it and they go, I just want to get out of my own life or get into someone else's life for a little bit of time. They want to see people falling in love. They want to fall in love with characters as well. And they want to experience those deep emotions. And politics doesn't always marry with that. I think you've got to be careful. I personally did not start out trying to write a political book. As you said, <laughs> long history in the feminist and labour movements and it just came naturally that someone would be very upset with what was effectively the Morrison government. Mm. But it's not named as such in the book. It was a time of of saying, why isn't anyone doing anything yeah. about this? Why is it that we go from fires to floods and we've still got a Prime Minister who is so soft on climate change and is so big on privileging the corporations and his rich mates. And so it, I didn't want to go in and write some piece of propaganda. It wasn't my intention to go in and say, you all need to think this or you need to be more informed or something. I really just wanted to express the human side of having lived through the fires and the political aspects of it just came along with it. And it was also important to me that that Callie as a main character was not a very well-versed political talker. She wasn't someone who would know all about the latest policies in Canberra. She had stepped out of that world. She was in deep writing hermit land. She was disconnected from all her old friends, all her old passions. She was there trying to write a book for three years that she couldn't make work, (laughs) much like my book. And it wasn't a big thing for her before the fire came through. And so when she comes out and sees her house has burned down and she's got the news cameras hovering, all she could say was, fucking do something. (laughs) And that is her catch cry, which goes viral in the book because everyone feels the same way. People are saying, yeah, fucking do something about climate change. We're sitting here, we're burning, we're melting. We're sitting there with sore throats all summer. Every The animals are dying, the mm. plants are dying. 
when are we going to start taking climate change seriously and make it part of the agenda? And I think I'm so deeply grateful to the Australian people that they chose a new government because we're already steps (laughs) being taken to um, remedy this situation and there's no easy answer to the climate climate collapse, basically, that we're living. Having people who actually take it seriously is really important. So... Mm. I guess, yeah, I think it is really important to talk about all this, but I also think that people being able to escape that world is vital as well. Yeah, because you don't want to alienate readers, do you? Like you say, they're going into the book to escape or to explore or to inhabit a character or whatever. So it's that fine line, isn't it, between including, I guess, those things that are important to you as a person and as a writer, but not pushing too hard that the reader's going to go, oh, enough of this, I can get this on the news. And for my doctorate, I've been looking at a lot of climate fiction and it can be really dry and they're such important texts. I really do believe in the importance of literature in charting different aspects of humanity and history and what we all go through. But, God, they can be depressing, so depressing. And even though you can read them and see this great beauty in these texts, that's not what I want to read if I've had a hard week at work or um, I'm just looking to switch off for a bit. And that's, I think, the value of literature as well, that it's not just switching on Netflix. And, God, I love switching on Netflix. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Don't we all? Big <laughs> Netflix fan. But it's it's a much more personal relationship that you get to have with a reader, I think. Yeah. Yeah. when someone's reading your book and that's what's been really great as well has been hearing from readers who say look I really wasn't engaged in the climate debate at all I didn't I just live my life I don't want to hear about depressing shit all the time and they said I picked up your book and now I feel like I've got Callie's passion as well I feel like okay. I'm a bit more about it I feel it's important that we talk about it and to hear that is such a great compliment because <laughs> Like I said, I really just went into it going, I just want to write this book for fun and see if I can do it. And, and I'm very proud with how Burnt Out came out. And That's and, fantastic. Yeah. And, That's and so the good to hear. Yeah. yeah. So you talked before about you did a master's in creative writing, you're working on a doctorate. Yeah. What do you feel have been the most important things you've learnt about craft of writing over the years? And the other thing I found interesting, Victoria, that you mentioned Despite the fact that you're having done those things, when it came time to write a commercial fiction novel, you were then going and looking for information on writing the three-act structure and things like that. I'm interested in how, what have you learnt from both sides of both the literary studies that you've done and then, I guess, studying more commercial fiction style methods of writing? Yeah, I think that a lot of good writing is reading. And I hear that in the writing community a lot. People are always talking about what they've been reading because if you just sit there writing and being stuck in your own head, then you're not writing well most of the time. And I've definitely been in periods where I've just been writing and then I've come to and I've hit a bit of a wall with it and then I've taken a reading break for a week and come to back to it with all this renewed passion and ideas not ideas that you steal from people but no no inspiration for you right you go yeah yeah I liked the way that character transitioned through that and that's that's what I've been missing here or there or I find it I really like the term active boredom as well (laughs) where you go off and chop potatoes and then suddenly oh that's what that person needs yeah (laughs) Um, yeah. I've had great ideas like chopping potatoes but I think my background at uni is mostly just studying English so the advantage of an English degree of course is that they take you basically through 
the classics and kind of classic adjacent texts. They explain different schools of thought in different periods. They help you do textual analysis. It's a very freeing, creative, interpretive process to do textual analysis. And that's my favourite part of English is just going in and looking at how the words work and how it's constructed. And I'd always loved pulling it apart and seeing what the insides looked like, basically, of books. And so that's such a useful skill to have as a writer to be able to pull stuff apart. And I think we all do it, whether consciously or subconsciously. But it did definitely did not prepare me for writing something that was structured. And, and I, I guess I, after studying a lot of these classics, most of which were written by men who had zero responsibility for children or running a house or having a real job, like these weren't the street sweepers who, were, who we read today. Yeah. They either were already rich or had a patron and often, don't get me wrong, would have to say, oh, I need a new patron or I need to impress this person. But it wasn't the same as being a mother of three kids in Australian suburbia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that I didn't ever do a straight up creative writing course. My creative writing stuff at uni has always been research based where they treat your writing as research, basically. They call it creative practice. Okay. And so no one was really sitting me down and going, okay, so this is a good premise. So what you need to do now is to put it into this structure and see how it would fit if you were working towards an inciting incident at 10, 11% of the way through. If you, by a quarter of the way through, you want to have the first plot point. No one was talking about that. Exactly, yeah. And that is something that I'm really passionate about now. And I don't think it was that difficult to access that information when I went for it. But, God, it changed everything for me. (laughs) Just about learning all those things that we need as commercial fiction authors, which are completely different. Not completely different. Obviously, when you're doing literary studies and, like you say, textual analysis and things, you're learning about the way words work and about all that, that creating beautiful writing for the reader and and immersing the reader and all that stuff. But as you say, there's these other realities of, especially for commercial fiction, that you need a plot and you need a story that's going to pull the reader in and have certain turning points and that all the genre expectations that we've learned about over the years as well. That's exactly right. And I think it's partly, yeah, it's about managing the reader's expectations because that woman said when I tried to sell her my cult novel, I like my commercial fiction to get going uh, quicker. And that was literary structure, i.e. no structure. Burnt Out does get going quickly. By the end of chapter two, her, she's going out to see what that smoke smell is yeah. suddenly invading her house. Like, he had to keep that going. And that's what I never got from university, which I think that if I was teaching at university, I would be really trying to go, okay, if you want to be writing in this, we've got to take apart the commercial works. You have to understand how that works and why people like that, because that's the secret in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of resistance in universities and academic academia because not to put two point of find a point on it, but a lot of academics don't see commercial fiction as valuable literature. Hence, they've got this wall up about it and don't want to actually discuss it really. Yeah. And I've definitely come up against that wall directly when, before I started my doctorate, I was workshopping a couple of ideas and I was just getting into commercial women's fiction and thinking, God, this is so good. Like, how am I? How have 
have I not been reading this the whole time? (laughs) But I still wanted to analyse it. I wanted to give it a place in academia and say this is worthy of our analysis too. And I pitched a thesis idea about looking at mothering in commercial women's fiction and I was told that they're not of literary value, that, that they are more of a sociology. And I'd said, reading these, this is what people read. Of course, we're going to look at this. And the people that I was talking to were saying, maybe try sociology instead. That just doesn't belong wow. in English literary <laughs> studies. It's like what world are they living in? It's very elitist. And look, as someone, and I'm sure like you're the same, I love, I still love to read literary fiction and there's a huge value in us reading it. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that commercial fiction is crap. Like, you know. And God, some literary fiction is crap. Like, frankly, yeah. <laughs> let's face it. It doesn't matter what, where you're at. Like, exactly. yeah. But it's been really important as well, having an appreciation for those structures, because for my uni, I am actually writing a book that is technically, I think, literary fiction. It's definitely not a rom com. Yeah. But I couldn't let myself go into that wasting eight years on books that had no structure again. I couldn't, like, I guess I probably have a bit of trauma held over from those two practice novels where I wish someone had just, yeah, <laughs> someone had told me about the whole structure thing. So I have used that three act structure and romance novel structures to scaffold this novel, and and it keeps it going. And yeah, and I think that you can marry those two things really well. You can have literary fiction that explores big ideas and is privileging prose and all this, whatever aspects you categorise literary fiction by, but also still have a proper structure that can mm. help the readers to stay engaged. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. We've mentioned the term commercial women's fiction a couple of times, Victoria, as someone who obviously has very strong feminist <laughs> feelings. How do you, I'm, this is something I ask a lot of people, but how do you feel about that term? I actually really like it. I do see it. Me too. Me too. I don't have a big debate. And I've seen people say, no, but the but men read my book too. And I'm like, yeah, I know that men have read Burnt Out and enjoyed it. And that's no one should feel ashamed. But I think there's something really freeing in saying, yeah, I'm writing for women. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm how I feel. Yeah. And I don't care about what the men think about my book I just don't like I appreciate like, and my biggest fan is my husband who who speed read burnt out he was like it's such a patron or I couldn't and he read it before right before it went to print while I had the document on my kindle and he's just still sitting up all night reading it oh, yay. loving it and that is a huge compliment but I'm just Life is too short to sit there going, I have to be palatable for everyone. I have to write something that everyone wants to read all the time because you're never going to get there. Mm. And it's what I like about different genre categorizations as well is it lets people go, you know what, I prefer crime. Like I just like reading. I've got a niece who has a copy of Burnt Out and she's like, my mum read it and loved it. I'm going to read it but I'm just finishing this Norwegian crime novel first. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's what you're into. I'm not going to, I don't really like police procedurals. And some of my great friends in the writing community have written excellent police procedurals that have gone gangbusters. 
but knowing your own limits and knowing what you like is good. And I think I'm there's no shame here <laughs> with the commercial women's fiction tag. I absolutely love it. And and I know some people sometimes use it as an insult. Like, there was <laughs> I don't talk about this much, but there was a review in the Sydney Morning Herald that slammed Burnt Out. Oh really? <laughs> Victoria Brookman's novel has a starkly polarized view of men. And it was like literally complaining about how I re- represented men. And I'm like, Come on. Let me guess. It Come wouldn't on. have been a man that wrote that review, would oh, it? You know <laughs> Who could not? And then it was like this romance with an activist twist. And I was like, you're saying that as a slur, but I'm going to take that and put it on all my promotional material. Fantastic. I like it. Yeah, it's a romance with an activist twist. Get over it. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love the way that you've turned that around. That is perfect. <laughs> I did cry at first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, who wouldn't? Yeah. But good on you for using it to your own, in your own way and pushing it. So that kind of brings me on to the next sort of thing I was going to talk to you about, which is the whole business side of writing. And Mm -hmm. I guess it does include reviews and handling those as well, but also the marketing that you have to do for your work and the social media platforms being on those. How have you found that experience and where what's your take on what part that plays in an author's life? I found it really distracting and a lot of hard work. I have a tendency to just spend all my time on social media. As I mentioned earlier, I've got ADHD. It means that my brain removes the dopamine more efficiently or right. efficiently than neurotypical people's brains. Social media is like a dopamine slot machine. And I will spend all my time on social media and I I have to stop myself. So I've there's been times where I've been much more active than I am now. I think it's really important in terms of getting yourself out there, showing people that you at bookshops, there might be people who follow you who haven't bought your book yet, who are like, oh yes, I have to get that. I've paid for some ads. Uh, I don't know if they've actually generated any sales. My affiliate links say no, but Zuckerberg says yes. (laughs) (laughs) You can trust him. So, look, I think it's a two-edged sword. Like, I I really enjoy connecting with people on there. There's especially writers and bookstagrammers, people who put up anything about what just other books they've read. It's I get a lot of book recommendations from social media. But, yeah, it's definitely something where it's I only use social media for my business stuff and I personally have to switch it off (laughs) yeah 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 when I was talking to Solari Gentile last week she basically and she's been writing publishing for 50 oh I don't know how long but since 2008 so she's 15 books in and she said basically she just uses it when she feels like using it and Mm. when she doesn't or she hasn't got time she doesn't do it and she doesn't sweat about it and I thought yeah it's a really good attitude to have because it can take over and especially I really love TikTok and I've got a TikTok account and I've connected with some wonderful people on there but you start thinking oh I should make a reel about this or I should make a TikTok about this and then your next thing you're going for a bushwalk and you're just filming stuff the whole time and I think it's fun because you know on the one hand I get to document my bushwalks because <laughs> I like yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> and on the other hand I'm like I just want to enjoy the damn bushwalk yeah you don't want to become obsessive about it do you yeah, yeah. and I think it, it takes over the creative parts of your brain as well if you are trying especially if you're first drafting if you're trying to get words down and get ideas down and think creatively about stuff and then you are at the same time going what am I going to post 
that's going to engage followers and get me new followers today and what, which hashtags am I going to use and blah, blah, blah. Those things come into conflict. Like one takes away from the other, I think. Yeah, for sure. One thing I meant to ask you about, Victoria, when we were talking about the whole craft thing was that you mentioned when we were chatting by email that you, you use a long synopsis method or that's what you've done with your current novel that you're working on. Is that right? Yeah, I've been playing around with it a bit. I actually heard it from Sally Hepworth on her Writerly Wednesdays um, thing on her Instagram, which is always yep. fair. She shares so much good info. It's like, she does, yeah. So much from that. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. So she was talking about it as a method of getting the ideas down and getting structure down without getting bogged down in how you, like, in how the scenes are going, basically. You're writing it chapter by chapter going, in this chapter, and so does this, and then this happens, and then she has to confront this or that. And you go through and you just do it as quite short if you want, but then you can actually keep going into it while you're doing those short ones and write a whole scene if you feel like it. Right. If you don't, then you go in the next scene that does this. And it's kind of, I think from what I've gleaned about it, it's about uh, taking that pressure off yourself in terms of making it perfect the first time around. So you're really just going, I'm just telling myself what's going to happen. And then you're going back and filling it in basically. And I know some people use the snowflake method and there's a lot of different things that people have. I was trying that for um, my next rom-com that I've got on the go. I haven't... I'm finding it hard to write two novels at once, honestly. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You're not writing the second novel. You're writing the second and third novel. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I have to stop myself writing the third novel because it's (laughs) I'm having a lot of fun with it. But I've got to finish the second one because otherwise... I'm just going to have a whole bunch of unfinished novels. And yeah, yeah. Are you well, on a contract? I'm not. No, okay. I'm not on a contract. <laughs> Ideas have been pitched but haven't been picked up. So, yeah, I'm just vibing with it. The Norwegian, which is my uni novel, is, like I said, it's not a rom-com anyway. I'm not feeling that much pressure with that one in terms of selling it because I've been on a scholarship at uni. It's obviously helped support my family <laughs> through yeah. three years, but I basically will have been paid more for that than I've ever been paid for a book. Wow, <laughs> that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And that's the one that I don't ever have to publish if I don't want to. There is zero obligation. So that's been such a fantastic freeing process just to go through that. And like I was saying, I was using the three-act structure and romance structures and stuff, but just having the space with that one to go, this is really out there. This is what happens if this suddenly happens. Just right. introducing random stuff to see what kind of chaos that can create. Yeah. Poor, long-suffering characters. So how are you balancing writing that with writing, like, the rom-com? I I basically have to decide what I'm doing that day. They're both in my brain all the time and fighting for space. I, as I mentioned earlier, I use Trello for a lot of my planning. So I have a full Trello ideas board where I just write down random ideas that come into my mind while chopping potatoes. Yeah. And, and... I have a specific board in there that is that rom-com, which is called The Husband Farm, and that, yeah, in that I just tweak little ideas here and there. I have probably about 8,000 words written of it, but, yeah, I started doing the long synopsis method, trying to calm myself down a bit and just go, I'm just planning, I'm just planning. But I find it hard hard to not, like, just get on a roll with things yeah if you get that thing it's and of course you've got family commitments and other life commitments as well and you're studying there's a lot going on 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'll have to do an exegesis for my thesis as well. So that's going to be fun. Okay. Have you got a time frame for your doctorate? Or? Yeah. So my scholarship runs out in March next year. Uh, that'll be my three-year mark. I should say I'll be finished the Norwegian completely by then, probably in the next few months. So with all the creative, or with all your writing commitments, family commitments, Victor, how do you go about filling that creative, like making sure that we've talked about finding the joy in the writing and things? You mentioned bushwalking, chopping potatoes. But are there <laughs> specific things you do when you're feeling like, oh, I really need to just top up my creative juices? Often the times if I'm that I will feel the lowest is when uh, I haven't been writing. If I have been just snowed under, for example, last term uh, we had the kids at home at least one child at home for five of the 10 weeks of last term. And that meant that I got nothing done. Yeah. Like illness in the family because they all had sniffles and you can't go to school at the moment if you've got sniffles. Yeah. So that I got in a bad headspace with that. And eventually I was like, I just have to go and write. I cannot. It's a bit for me, the creative side of stuff is a bit of a like self-charging battery like get into it and it feels awful at first and you go why should I should quit and get a real job but eventually I start enjoying it and I'll say to my husband I'm just gonna go and write for half an hour and then three hours later he's, he's like knocking on the door please come out and help me with the children help <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I but reading is I love a good if I'm hitting the wall with my writing I'll sit down and read I've been trying to read a bit more widely recently because I spent the last two years only reading commercial women's fiction and because the Norwegian kind of crosses a lot of different genre boundaries I've been trying to get my head in a lot of different spaces for it yeah yeah just broaden what I'm reading yeah it's great what would you say is at the heart of your writing that's a hard question (laughs) (laughs) I think just I just have this strange compulsion to Right. I just want to put a lot of thoughts down on paper, I think, and I get into imagination land and I really enjoy hanging out with random people who don't exist. Yeah. And, and I think that a lot of people like, everyone's got a book in them and I'm sure everyone does, but for me it's I don't feel like it's a choice a lot of the time. I feel like it's once you've started writing, you're like, I can never stop now. I'm, and, like, honestly, there's been times where I've been like, I have got basically a negative income from Burnt Out and I love that book, but it is not a good small business opportunity. Model, yeah. <laughs> not recommended to anyone who wants to make money. <laughs> but I would never give it up. so that creative process is really integral to who you are absolutely and it probably goes back to that whole my mum and my grandma being writers as well that it's just been part of the part of me my entire life and I think Mm. if I wasn't writing novels for people to read I would be still sitting there writing secret poetry yeah that's great I'm picturing a memoir in the future about (laughs) your family about the women in your family and the poet sounds Yeah. 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 We are going to talk a little bit further for the Patreon supporters and the four curly questions, but I think you also have a launch coming up, don't you, Victoria? I do. I'm actually having a national launch of Burnt Out at Parliament House next week. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I haven't really advertised it yet because it's most, it's really like for Parliament House people. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, in Canberra, uh, yeah, we're having a launch in. 
the caucus room of the Labour Party, which is, I can't believe it's even happening and I'm so excited. That is amazing. <laughs> where, 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 where will we be able to watch that? Or I'll share pictures and everything. Okay, great. Yes, my social handle for everyone listening is Victoria Brookman, but without an A in the man at the end. Okay, so just yeah. Brook MN. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Remove the man. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. It's rights for women. You can say that. Fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, that'll be great. And then I'm also having a launch at Glee Books. My Sydney launch will be at Glee Books on August the 26th, which is a Friday night. And I'm going to be speaking with Rebecca Huntley, who is a social researcher and author and broadcaster and like climate change expert, basically, in terms of social stuff. Yeah. So we'll be talking about Burnt Out and it's going to be really good. Come along, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll put the link for that in the show notes too. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah. It's been so great chatting and I'm looking forward to talking to you about the four curly questions for the Patreon supporters. Yes. Everyone um, support Pam's Patreon. (laughs) Thank you, Victoria. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.